Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles again to Hebrews chapter 10. As we enter into this third of four parts in this section, Hebrews 10 verses 19 to 25, let us draw near. I was reminded this week that successful coaches are often known as those who have the capacity to inspire. You know, when it comes to those legendary coaches that are now famous and in the hall of fame for their sport, we hear of legendary halftime speeches that rally a team to an improbable victory. We hear of previously average players who were coached into achieving greatness. We might say that the best coaches are those who are gifted at dispensing hope. The best coaches speak and act in such a way that it instills not only respect in their players, but hope. These coaches convince their players that they can and should win every single game they play. It begins, of course, with a strategic game plan for that week's opponent. And if it's going to work, the, the coaches have to not only teach that game plan to the players, but they have to get them to buy into it. They have to get the players to believe that this game plan will be effective to win the game. And then before the game, on game day, the, the locker room is filled and the head coach calls the team together and gives some kind of final speech that will hopefully bring all the work from that week together to culminate into this sense of excitement and anticipation that the game really is all but one. All that's left to do is play the plays. And if the coach is successful, those players run out of the locker room onto the field and they're riding high on hope. But then the game begins. And those hopeful players come head to head with another group of players also riding high on hope. And both the fervency and foundation of their hope will now be put to the test. By the end of the game, they will find out whether or not their hope was justified. Was the coach really worth their hope? Did his game plan prove in the end to be enough to claim the victory or was it all just for show? The reality is hope is a powerful motivator and it's not confined only to sports. There's a sense in which hope is the fuel of our lives. Our disposition and our outlook on any given day can often be traced back to the presence or absence of hope in the inner man. And in the same way that the validity of a player's hope is put to the test when they step on the field, our hope is put to the test as we live daily lives in a fallen world. Life in a fallen world tests not only our hope itself, but the trustworthiness of the foundation of our hope. Let me ask you this morning, what is the basis of your hope? What gets you out of bed in the morning? What gives you joy and strength to face the ups and the downs of life in a fallen world? Well, this morning, the author of Hebrews is gonna call us to be fortified by a resolve to hold fast to Christ, who is the security of steadfast hope. That's my prayer as we study these verses that the Lord will use it to fill us with the, the lasting eternal hope that he's given to us in Christ alone. Let's read together Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 19, all the way to 25. 
Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembly together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We've been unpacking this rich theme over the last few weeks that Christ's superiority motivates sincere worship, steadfast hope, and intentional fellowship. We're on the second of those motivations today, steadfast hope. We've seen the structure of this introduction to the application section of Hebrews. It really revolves around two possessions that then motivate three practices. Two possessions, three practices. Those two possessions, just by way of reminder, number one, are a great confidence. We have in Christ a great confidence to enter the holy place. We're invited by the blood of Christ and what he's accomplished for us to draw near to God. The second possession that we have as Christians is a great priest. Not only are we invited into the holy place, but we're told that we have a great priest who ministers on our behalf, interceding to the Father and ministering in and through us by the Holy Spirit day in and day out. Those two grand gifts from God should change the way we live. They should have practical effect on our daily lives. And the first practice that ought to naturally flow out of those possessions we've seen is to draw near to God. Draw near to God, verse 22. Let us draw near. We've looked at that over the last two weeks on two fronts. We've seen the, the quantity or the means by which we draw near. We commit to prayer, we treasure his word, and we gather with other believers. Those are some of the primary ways that we regularly draw near to God. But these are then qualified. Last week we saw three qualities that should define the way in which we draw near, the manner of our drawing near. We saw that we are to draw near with sincerity of heart, with assurance of faith, and always remembering our condition. Each of these admonitions will be grounded in a truth about Christ, recognizing that we do these things not in our own strength, but ultimately because of the strength which God provides and the work that Christ has done. He is the basis of our drawing near, and he will be the basis, as we'll see, of all of these practices. Now this morning, we're gonna focus our attention just on verse 23, which gives us the second practice that should flow out of these two possessions. And practice number two is this, hold fast to Christ. Hold fast to Christ. Look back at verse 23. It follows the same pattern as verse 22. Let us hold fast. Now, this is interesting because each of these admonitions are phrased the same way. This is in the first person plural, let 
us. The author includes himself in the admonition, which in this case especially shows the humility of the author. Because remember, the entire time throughout Hebrews, he's been calling these people out of their apathy, out of their, their looking back over the fence at Judaism and wanting to return to it in some ways. He's not given in to those temptations, and yet he includes himself here when he says, brothers, let us hold fast. And he does that, he includes himself because the author understands that this admonition is not just to be ours on days when we're particularly feeling weak. This is the daily life of the Christian. Hold fast. On your best days, hold fast. On your worst days, hold fast. And every day in between is to be defined by holding fast. Notice the, the force, the effort in this word or in these words, let us hold fast. There's intentionality here, proactivity. Picture yourself, as we talked about earlier in Hebrews, holding on to a rope of faith that's anchored in the holy place, behind the veil. It's anchored in heaven itself, on heaven's shores. We hold fast to that rope of faith with a white-knuckled grip, refusing to let go as daily life beats against us like the wind and the waves. That's the idea. Let us hold fast. This is proactive. It takes effort. This is not simply let go and let God and let ourselves be blown here and there by the wind and the waves. No, the admonition of scripture is hold fast. Hold fast. We fight with all our might for faith, for hope, for love, And it is in this way, in holding fast, that we avoid becoming one who's tossed here and there by every wind and wave of doctrine. We avoid becoming one who is a double-minded man, vacillating in his faith. We grab on to the rope of faith, anchored deep in the sand of heaven's shore, and we hold on. Now, we have to expect that if the Christian life is what Paul says it is, which is walking in a manner worthy of our calling, that's going to require effort, fierce effort. Just as your physical muscles don't grow stronger unless you test them with exercise, so your muscle of faith doesn't grow unless you test it, unless you stretch that muscle of faith and put it into action. But really, to to gain understanding of verse 23, we now have to ask the question, what exactly are we being told to hold fast to? Let us hold fast to what? Specifically, he says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. The confession. Our confession is what we are to hold fast to. And we're told that this confession also is the foundation of our hope. We have steadfast hope in the Christian life, but he's not saying here that our hope is the content of the confession. What he's saying is the truths that are the content of our confession, when we hold on to those truths, they produce hope. The hope is the product of holding fast to the confession. We don't hold fast to hope itself, we hold fast to the truth and hope is the byproduct of that holding fast. So that means this confession is important. What exactly is this confession that we're holding fast to? 
Well, I think the fact that the author leaves it undefined for us is important. He doesn't say, let us hold fast to the confession, which is, he just says our confession. He's leaving it open to our understanding of what that confession certainly consists of. And I think it's a comprehensive confession in that way. Of course, at the base level, the Christian confession begins with the affirmation that Jesus Christ is Lord. Romans 10, 9 and 10, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. This confession of Jesus Christ as Lord is actually so fundamental to the Christian faith, it's so, so fundamentally true that even his enemies will have to confess this in the end. Listen to Philippians chapter two, verses nine to 11. For this reason also God highly exalted him, that is Jesus, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, listen to that, every knee of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. The fact that Jesus Christ is Lord is to be the primary, most basic confession of the Christian. Jesus is Lord. By this confession, we, we freely and joyfully confess that Jesus is rightfully God, rightfully King, that he deserves all glory and honor and majesty. And wrapped into this confession, Jesus Christ is Lord, is also an understanding that that means he is the God-man, meaning he is the Christ, he is the Messiah, the promised Redeemer. This is the great, great confession that Peter would make in front of the other disciples in Matthew 16. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ. That is, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. That rock being the confession that Peter made, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, that Paul says is the basis of saving faith if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord. Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Messiah, the, the promised redeemer from long ago, and therefore this confession also includes the, the gospel itself that Jesus came proclaiming and fulfilling as Paul would say to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, verses one to four, now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which you also received and which also you stand, by which also you were saved if you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. Now here's the, the content of that message in its base form. For I delivered to you as of first importance that what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. In a nutshell, that's what Christ has done for us at the base level. He, he, he was uh, sacrificed as an offering for sins. He was truly dead and therefore buried, and then rose again 
to life. So when we say what is our confession, well, we can simplify it to one word. The Christian confession is Jesus at the most basic level. But we understand that when we say we preach Christ, that in that name, the name of Jesus Christ includes all that he is, all that he did, and all that he promised. And so our confession is Christ and all that that name means. Paul expounds upon what we have in Christ and says that actually every spiritual blessing is ours in Christ. Ephesians 1.3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with almost all spiritual blessings. <laughs> who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And so it is that we hold fast to our confession of Jesus Christ as Lord and included in that confession is all that he is, all that he did, and all that he's promised for us. Now, if you think about it, that's exactly what the author of Hebrews has been leading us to this entire time for 10 chapters of doctrine about Christology. Why has he labored so diligently to prove to us time and time again that Jesus is superior, Jesus is better, Jesus is best? It's because Jesus is at the heart of our confession. It is Jesus in whom we have believed. It is Jesus in whom our faith rests. It is Jesus who has earned our trust, our allegiance, our worship, and our love. So in a nutshell, when he says hold fast to the confession, we hold fast to our confession of Jesus Christ our Lord. It's as if the author is saying, listen, I've proved to you now beyond a shadow of a doubt that your original confession in Christ is trustworthy because he's worthy of it. Now I'm telling you, having proved that, hold fast. Hold fast that confession. The initial confession that you made that Jesus Christ is Lord was trustworthy. Don't let it go. Come what may, come what trial, come what difficulty, come what rays of sunshine, hold on to that grip of faith in that confession. And now we understand why he says that this is the confession of our hope. Our confession of Jesus Christ is the basis of our eternal hope. And this hope is not an example of wishful thinking. In the New Testament, the, the word hope, when it's used, is, is not used in the way that we most often use the word hope. When we say, you know, I'm, I'm hoping for a good week this week at work. What we're saying is, there's a reasonable chance that's not gonna happen, but I sure hope that it happens, right? That's not what the Bible means when it says hope. What the Bible means is this is a settled expectation. It is done, and we are therefore confident that it will certainly come to pass. In Christ, all the spiritual blessings of God are secured and guaranteed, as we read in Ephesians 1. He's already given us every spiritual blessing in Christ. So Jesus then is the content of our confession and hope is the lasting result that comes from holding fast to Jesus, our confession. Now as we think about that, it's no wonder that hopelessness is directly tied to placing our confidence in anything other than Christ. 
If holding fast to our confession, who is Christ, produces hope, then to insert anything else in the place of that confession will naturally produce not hope, but hopelessness. These Christians and Hebrews are in the midst of a difficult trial. They're no doubt running low on hope. And the author says the remedy is yet again to get your eyes off of yourself, off of your circumstances, and place them firmly again on the content of your confession, Jesus Christ himself. Hold fast to your faith in Christ. Christ alone is where hope is found. Christ alone is where hope is eternally secure. No other substitute can hold up your hope in a fallen world. Christ alone lifts our countenance, fills our hearts with joy, and calms our raging soul with peace. If we hold fast to any other person or life goal, than the confession of faith in Christ and Christ alone, then our hope will eventually fly away with the wind. It's a call to cling to our confession of Christ with an unyielding grip by rehearsing the truths that we've come to know about him. How do you hold fast? You hold fast by rehearsing, meditating on the truth, reminding yourself of truth, committing yourself to believe that truth and to walk in light of that truth. We rehearse the truth of scripture which reveals the nature and the work of Christ along with the promises of Christ and we anchor ourselves in those revealed truths, those inspired truths that are given to us in scripture. Holding fast then is a battle of the mind you will win or lose the battle with holding fast between your ears. We hold fast to Christ by preaching the truth to ourselves, by not listening to ourselves, as Martin Lloyd-Jones admonishes us. Stop listening to yourself and preach the truth to yourself. And notice how the author describes the fervency with which we're to hold fast. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope, how? Without wavering, without wavering. One Greek lexicon explains this Greek word, wavering, as something that does not bend from side to side. It doesn't bend either way. It's unwavering. It's unbending regardless of the power of the waves, regardless of the power of the wind. And so when we take the admonition itself to hold fast, and then we pair it up with the description without wavering, hold fast without wavering, we have a description of both the intensity with which we're to cling to our confession and the endurance with which we're to cling to that confession. So we hold fast with all our might and then we keep holding fast with perseverance until he brings us home or until he returns. And yet we all have to admit, don't we, that holding fast to our confession of faith in Christ and his promises is not always easy. The resolve of our faith to continually maintain that Jesus is who he says he is and he will do what he says he will do is tested daily. And if we're gonna hold fast without wavering as this text tells us to do, then 
then it's essential that we understand what are the kinds of temptations that will come our way and tempt us to waver? What kinds of things tempt us to bend? The scriptures give us the answer. The first temptation that may cause us to waver is the prioritization of self. The prioritization of self. From birth, our favorite idol is ourselves. And that's why following Christ requires that you die. Mark 8, 34 to 35 says, and he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Listen, when we repent and believe the gospel, we die a spiritual death. There is a fundamental change on the inside of us. We're given a new nature through the process of regeneration. And that new nature now desires to follow Christ, loves Christ, and hates sin. But the Bible also teaches that we're left in conjunction with our new nature with something called the flesh. It's the part of you and I that's yet to be redeemed. You know it well if you've tried to walk in the truth. And our flesh is constantly trying to draw us back into wearing the clothes that our old nature used to love to wear. And the favorite outfit of your flesh is always self-love. So when life stops being fun, and when life stops being easy, when we don't feel very happy about our circumstance, our flesh tempts us to put on that old coat of self-love and throw a pity party. Self-love tempts us to wallow instead of walk. And when we give into that old allure of self-love, we take our eyes off of Christ and we place them on ourselves and the result is our confidence begins to waver. We start to feel just a little bit shaky in our faith. But self-love is not the only temptations the scriptures warn us of that may tempt us to waver. There are many others. I'm gonna read just one passage from Matthew 13. This is the explanation of the parable of the soils And in this parable, we'll draw out three other common temptations that tempt us to waver in our faith. Matthew 13, verses 18 to 23. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what's been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. The one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, Yet he has no root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. And the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it who bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some 60 and some 30. Now from that explanation of that parable, let's mention three other temptations that commonly tempt us to waver. They are the fear of man, the threat of persecution, 
and the allure of worldliness. The fear of man, the threat of persecution, and the allure of worldliness. When, when maintaining our confidence in our confession of Christ threatens to downgrade us in the eyes of men or to bring on us the wrath of men in the form of persecution, it's a temptation to waver. The unbeliever who, who has said he's come to Christ but is not truly in Christ, he won't hold up to that, the parable says. The parable says that, that person will fall away into apostasy. But to those who are truly redeemed, while by God's grace we will not ultimately abandon Christ, don't think for a moment that we won't be tempted at times to waver. And if you don't believe me, just think of how many times you've been in a conversation that led to a wide open door for the gospel and you didn't take it. The fear of man, the threat of persecution are a temptation to waver. But we must, by the grace of God, hold fast our confession. And not just in our hearts, but by opening our mouths. To hold fast the confession of Christ is to be willing to speak of Christ no matter what it costs you personally. I don't care if it downgrades me in your eyes. I don't care if it brings persecution upon my head. I love my Savior and my Lord. He has given all for me. How could I not speak of him? Hold fast the confession. In addition to the fear of man and the fear of persecution, the allure of worldliness is a common temptation to waver that we must put off. The the allure of worldliness, as the parable explanation tells us, leads the unbeliever who's faking a love for Christ, leads them to leave Christ in pursuit of pleasure, of wealth. But the true believer, again, by God's grace, will not ultimately be drawn away from Christ totally to these things, but don't kid yourself into thinking that the allure of worldliness is not a temptation to waver. It is. That's why John tells us in 1 John 2 to be on guard against worldliness. 1 John 2, 15, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father's not in him. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Another common biblical example of a temptation that tempts us to waver in our confession is the weariness of trial. The weariness of trial. God, in his providence and grace, often allows us to undergo designed trials by his hand meant for our spiritual good. But they don't typically feel very good in the moment, do they? No. And the pain and the heaviness of trial can create an opportunity for our flesh to present us with a temptation to waver in the confidence of our confession. But we must, like the psalmist, like we sang this morning, call ourselves back to truth. In Psalm 43, 5, why are you in despair, O my soul? And why are you disturbed within me? What's he doing? He's preaching to himself. What's wrong with you, he says? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. Preach the truth to yourself when trials tempt you to waver. 
And number six, the sixth temptation that we see in scriptures that tempts us to waver is the cancer of bitterness. The cancer of bitterness. Now this sixth example is one that grows in our hearts when we give in to any of the previous five examples. Bitterness grows in the soil of self-love, of pride, and self-righteousness. It shamefully responds to God by saying, I deserve better than what you've ordained for me. Bitterness grows when we make false negative judgments of God's character while also making false positive judgments of our own. This is why Hebrews 12 will tell us in Hebrews 12, 15, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by it many be defiled. If you give in to bitterness towards God or towards men, you will find your confidence and your confession of Christ wavering in the wind of your circumstance. These are some of the dangers that we have to be on guard against. But of course this morning, you're here, I trust, because you don't wanna waver in your confidence of Christ. I don't wanna waver in my confidence in Christ. He is our hope. We love him, amen? We desire to follow him. So the question then becomes, how do we do this? It seems like quite a daunting task when we look at our lives and what we're faced with in in this fallen world. So how practically, even in the face of such great temptations as those that are on the screen, do we really hold fast? Well, thankfully the answer comes to us in the end of verse 23. Read the verse with me again. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. He who promised is faithful. The author answers the how for us in the same verse in which he gives us the admonition. Again, what we see here is that Christ ultimately is the hope and the reason why we are able, by God's grace, to obey such an admonition. And notice our faith is here in this final phrase is not in the promises of God themselves, it's in God himself. For he who promised is faithful. The faithfulness of God is the hope here. The character and the nature of God are the bedrock on which our confession is built. As I mentioned last week, each of these three practices that we're to put on are built on Christ. He gives an an admonition that on the surface sounds very daunting. Then he immediately follows the admonition with a reminder of why it is that we can walk in such an admonition, and it's because of Christ. Our drawing near was based on the work of Christ, and our holding fast is based on the character of Christ. He is faithful. Now, don't miss the significance of what he's just said. First, we're called to hold fast to our confession. But now we're reminded that we can hold fast without fear of falling away because it's he who holds fast to us. You see that? Hold fast because he's faithful. He holds on to you, Christian, and therefore your holding on to him will not fail if you're truly in Christ 
because he will never fail. Paul tells us that all the promises of God are yes in Christ. 2 Corinthians 1.20, for as many as are the promises of God, in him they are yes. Therefore also through him is our amen to the glory of God through us. What he's saying is Christ is the guarantee that all the promises of God will be fulfilled and we add our amen to that statement by believing those things and worshiping God as truly the one who's faithful to keep his promises. What is it that God's promised to us in Christ? We could spend weeks talking about the promises of God in Christ that are in scripture, but I thought it might be helpful for us, for our encouragement, just to quickly look at a a quick list of a sampling of some of the promises that are ours, the scriptures say, in Christ. What has God promised? Well, eternal life, heavenly citizenship, inexplicable peace, to hear our prayers, to build his church, to work all things together for good, every spiritual blessing, to supply our needs, rest. He's promised to return. He's promised never to forsake us. He's promised to complete our sanctification, our preservation, and even our glorification. And this is just a sample list of some of the promises that are ours in Christ. This morning, our our passage encourages us to remember the promises of God and to have confidence in those promises because the one who made them is eternally faithful. He doesn't change, he doesn't fail. So that means we hold fast to our confession by proactively fixing our minds on the character of God. Dwell on the faithfulness of God. He will not fail me. He's never failed, he will not fail me now, and he will not fail me in the future. As I was looking at these promises of God this week, it's interesting how often the description of God as faithful is listed in connection with the fact that God will see to it that we are ultimately sanctified. Listen to just a couple of passages for your encouragement. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now listen to this. Faithful is he who calls you and he will also bring it to pass. He will do it. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, a famous verse on how do we overcome temptation? No temptation's overtaken you, but such is common to man, and God is faithful. There it is. How do you overcome temptation? Because God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you'll be able to endure it. Christian If you don't hear anything else this morning, come away with this. God is faithful. He's worthy of your trust. He's worthy of your confidence. And his purposes to accomplish his glory and to sanctify his people will not fail. What we have to remember though 
is that his purposes for us are primarily concerned with his glory and our progress in the faith. When you look at those promises that we looked at, they are primarily dealing with what he has promised to do in you through Christ. We saw this a couple of weeks ago. We referenced Ephesians 5. I want to read it again. This is the description of how husbands are to love their wives, but I want you again to focus on the reason, which is the love that Christ demonstrates to his church and how has he loved her. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. For what reason? So that he might sanctify her, that is that he might make her holy, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Now, why do I read that verse here? It's because these are the promises that you need to understand that Jesus has committed himself to accomplishing in you. He will not fail to do it. God has not promised to make your life easy. He's not promised to give you wealth or long life, but God has promised to conform you to the image of his son and he will do it. And we will one day see him face to face and we will see him as he is because we will be like him because he will do it. Set your hope on this, Christian. He will bring you safely home to himself. And when our confession is held fast because our confidence in his, is in his unfailing character, then and only then will our hearts be filled with hope. This shines a clear spotlight on the true reality behind our hopelessness, as we mentioned before. When we feel hopeless, it's because we've placed our confidence in the wrong thing. It's so tempting to place our hope in a particular outcome that we desire, isn't it? We dream about it, we envision this outcome that we believe, we're believing God to do. And trust me, God can do anything. That's not the issue. The issue is when we set our hope on imaginary expected outcomes that we are believing God will most certainly bring to pass that are not in scripture. We make our investments in the stock market and we, we dream and we, we see them coming to a certain end. By the time I'm this age, they're gonna be this much because my advisor tells me so, so it must be so. We dream of some strange relationship in our lives having this end result if we just hold on. But these things are not worthy of our confidence. Instead, God alone is worthy of your hope, Christian. He alone is worthy of your confidence. It's not that he can't fix that strained relationship. It's not that he can't provide for you. He will provide for us. It's that he is asking you here in this passage to trust in him. Have your confidence in God and God alone and leave the results of that up to him and then you will find your heart filled with hope. But as long as we set our hope on expectations that we've created in our own minds, we shouldn't be surprised when hope runs away because it's rooted in the wrong thing. Don't forget as well that scripture reveals to us clearly that God does promise to preserve us, but often he promises to preserve us through trials, not by taking us out of them. I was struck by a passage as I was thinking about that this week. 
in Revelation to the church in Smyrna. Listen to this, Revelation 2.10. He tells this church, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you'll be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. Now think about that. Initially, when you are hearing that, this is Christ speaking to this church and you hear, listen, you're gonna be put in prison, some of you, and it's gonna be a test and a trial for 10 days. You're thinking, oh, I can do about anything for 10 days. I can do that. I can trust the Lord through that. And then he says, be faithful until I get you out of prison after 10 days. Is that what he says? Be faithful unto death. What is he saying? I don't think it's a blanket promise that all of them were killed, but it is setting their hope in the right place. The hope is not that the persecution's gonna be over, that, that yeah, you're gonna make it through. It's that it's gonna, it may be over by him removing it, but it may be over by the fact that it takes your life, but you will come safely home to me, he says. Persevere to the end. This is the way we ought to think about trials. For he who promised is faithful. That's a summary statement of our confidence. It's a summary statement of our hope. He's faithful. His faithfulness, his eternal promises breed hope in the heart. We just have to be careful to put our trust in the promises that he has made and not the imaginary promises that we've fabricated in our own minds. As we've seen, the balance to that, it's not wrong to bring our heartfelt prayers to God. It's not wrong to ask God to do certain things. And God is unfailingly good to us. He's so good. He often does things that, that go far beyond our expectation of his goodness. But he's not promised to give us a happy, easy life. But he has promised to be faithful. So if the key to holding fast to our confession of faith in Christ is to proactively meditate on the faithfulness of God, how do we translate that into our daily lives? What I wanna do is earlier I gave us a list of some of the biblical temptations that we're warned will tempt us to waver. And now I want us to think through the process of change. How do we put off, renew our mind and put on so that when those temptations come, we end up walking in righteousness and not giving in to the temptation to waver in our faith. So let me remind you quickly of what those negative temptations to waver were, the prioritization of self, the fear of man, the threat of persecution, the allure of worldliness, the weariness of trial, and the cancer of bitterness. And now quickly, I want us to see what the scripture says is the opposite righteous virtue that we ought to put on in the place of those temptations so that we can stand when we're tempted to waver. What strengthens us to stand? Well, number one, the prioritization of God. Every time you and I are tempted to prioritize ourself, we kill that temptation by proactively turning our minds to truth and reminding ourselves of the glory of God and then walk in obedience to him for his name's sake, Matthew 6, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Don't worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. When we are overwhelmed with worry and anxiety, what he says is prioritize God, seek first his kingdom, seek first his righteousness and allow him to worry about all of these things. 
that are worrying you. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. The second temptation, how do we put off the fear of man? By putting on the fear of God. When your heart is tempted to fear man's opinion of you, turn around and immediately remind yourself of scripture's call to fear God. Proverbs 1.7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Remember Solomon and all of his wisdom comes to the end of his life and what does he say is the conclusion of it all? After all has been weighed and measured, Ecclesiastes 12, the conclusion when all is heard is fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person and God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it's good or evil. Fight the temptation when you feel it rise in your heart not to speak and not to act because you fear that it's gonna lower you in the eyes of men. Turn your mind to the fear of God and say, no, I will fear God more than I fear this person and what they think of me. What about the threat of persecution? How do we put that off? By putting on the threat of apostasy. The threat of apostasy. If true threats of persecution arise and they tempt you to waver in your confession of Christ, then turn your mind to God's warning in scripture of the danger of apostasy. There's a reason why the book of Hebrews keeps coming back to apostasy over and over again. You know, every warning passage that we've seen and we have more to come, comes back again to this warning of falling away. Why? Well, it's not because the author thinks that all of these people are actually unbelievers. In fact, I think he believes most of them are believers. That's why he calls them brothers. And he understands that for the true believer, when you hear of the threat of apostasy to fall away from the God that you love, it wakens you from your apathy. You say, wait a minute, I don't want that. I love Christ. And it causes the true believer to run to Christ, not fall away from Christ. And so when you are tempted to be Weary because of the threat of persecution or waver, remind yourself of the threat of apostasy. What's the other option? The other option is to forsake Christ in order to avoid the persecution. And immediately the heart says, not an option. Not an option. I will stand even if it ends in my death. Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul. Rather fear him who's able to destroy both soul and body in hell. What about the allure of worldliness? How do, you, how do you combat the allure of worldliness? By putting on the allure of godliness. For the Christian, the pleasures of this world may be tempting, but when we meditate on truth, they cannot compare to the promises of God. There's not one pleasure that the world can offer you that compares to a single promise on that list that we looked at before. And so when you're tempted to be drawn after worldly wealth or worldly pleasure, recall to mind the promises of God and the fact that they are yes in Christ and add your amen to those. What does it look like to amen the fact that the promises of Christ are more valuable than, more valuable than all else? Well, it looks like this, Philippians 3 Whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. 
What about the heaviness of trial? How do you combat the heaviness of trial? What do you put on in its place? The faithfulness of God. You battle the weariness and heaviness of trial by focusing, as we've learned this morning, on the faithfulness of God. Recall to mind the words of Christ to Paul when he prayed for the thorn to be taken away in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, my grace is sufficient for you. You know, sometimes when we hear that verse, I think that sadly what we hear is God responding to Paul and saying something like this, I know that you want me to take this away, but sorry, my grace is all you get. That's not what God says to Paul. No, in this passage, what God, what God reveals is that Paul's prayer was actually for something of lesser value than what he truly needed. By promising his grace, God gave Paul a gift that was greater than his request, not less. What he tells Paul is no, I'm gonna give you something better than taking it away. I'm gonna strengthen you through the trial so that you will live and operate based in my strength and not your own. 2 Corinthians 12, nine, and he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. And Paul responds, most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I'm well content with weakness, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. What about bitterness? How do you combat the temptation of bitterness, finally, with the balm of gratitude? You put on the balm of gratitude. When, when you, <clears throat> excuse me, feel that repulsive flavor of bitterness rising up in your mouth, so to speak, force yourself immediately to go on a treasure hunt for gratitude. Make yourself physically call out to God in prayer, rehearse out loud the ways that God has been good to you, all the ways that he's using you and working in you and through you. Call them out to God. Go on a treasure hunt for gratitude. Remind yourself to believe the best of God and to be suspicious of your own pride and tendency to self-righteousness and self-love. Remind yourself of Psalm 119.68. God, you are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. Listen, when we're tempted towards sin, it causes us to, to, to waver in that grip on the rope of our confession Turn your mind to truth. And this morning, I can't leave this passage without acknowledging the fact that all of this begins with a confession of genuine faith. Are you even holding on to the rope? Let me ask you this morning, have you truly come to know the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is master? Have you humbled yourself in repentance and faith, understanding that your only hope for forgiveness of sins is the work of that Christ did on the cross, to live a perfect life, to die as a sacrifice for sin, and to rise again from the grave. The scriptures are clear as we've read this morning. Confess Jesus Christ as Lord, repent of your sin and put your faith in Christ, and there and there alone will you find real eternal salvation and a confidence and a confession that gives eternal hope. As we close our time and prepare our heart for 
communion, let me just leave you with two quick questions of application, Christian. Number one, how tightly are you clinging to your confession? How's your grip looking on the rope of faith, holding on to your confession in Christ? And secondly, is your hope tethered to the faithfulness of God? Is your hope tethered to the faithfulness of God? Are you feeling hopeless this morning? Turn again to look at Christ. Are you resting in the faithfulness of God or in your hope for some outcome that you desire for him to bring of your circumstance? Remind yourself, he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He will fulfill every promise he's made. Preach the truth to yourself and watch as the Lord fills you again with a fresh, renewed hope.